0: Please let yourself sit and be settled um, and listen because the teachings are not so much something to remember as they are a reminder of something that you already know um, in the core of your being. Um, And so you listen to resonate with what sounds true. And if it rings true, then it's something that reawakens or nourishes. And if it isn't, toss it out, you know, compost, it's completely fine. So in coming to meditation, um, which many of you have, some of you are quite new to it, but many of you have been coming to practice for a time, Um, we each carry a kind of question. Sometimes they're called sacred questions amidst the mystery of incarnation. And i like to read this thing you heard me in the past from the Associated Press. In one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> According to a statement issued in 2009 by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the law, which went into effect last year, strictly stipulates the procedure by which one is to reincarnate, and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. Right? <laughs> so that's one approach to our human predicament. Um, somewhat problematic as you, The because as another poet writes, the world is full of divinity and strangeness and science stops where all humans do at the doors of birth and death. We know no more why you and more than than anyone else why a seed remembers the oak of 20 million years ago, why dust acquires the form of a woman or how consciousness beholds a rainbow in space and time. We haven't yet solved the secret of a single name upon the earth. And we may try to pluck the nymph from the river, but we can't pluck the river from ourselves. There are sacred places everywhere and the world is still a holy grove where we wander hunting for the tree of life under which we already live. So everybody has their question and sometimes it's a question of how to be happy or what is freedom? Or maybe it's just relief from suffering or tedium or, or struggle. Or maybe it's your question of understanding or meaning. Or maybe it's the question of justice for you or the question of love. In seeking liberation, the Buddha had his own profound questions. One of the questions was about human suffering and the end of human suffering. How do we come to the happiness that's beyond the realm of our sufferings? What's the path to the end of sorrow or suffering? His other question was really a central spiritual question, who am I? And the Buddha in the historical writings, he was born a kshatriya, the warrior caste, a prince, and there he was in his palace being beautifully taken care of, as the story's told. And then he went out and he saw the heavenly messengers, which is to say he saw an old person, a sick person, and finally he saw a corpse for the first time. Remember when you saw a corpse the first time? Even when you are sort of prepared, it's shocking, actually, isn't it? It's like, whoa, wait a second. Um, There's something so profound. And this was a kind of... Wake up for the Buddha who lived a very, how, how, we, how we might call, you know, a very outer-focused life. And then he realized, wait, I, I want to understand this life. Who am I really? I want to know what freedom is um, when, we, when we're limited by aging and sickness and death. I want to know what nobility is. I was born, uh, you know, a prince. And he began to discover that nobility is not limited to family or birth or race or caste. He was very adamant about that. Um, And we too, in some fundamental way, may seek to understand who we are. I tell the story sometimes of this Buddha statue in Northern Thailand that was quite renowned because it was old. It was a big folk statue covered with clay and it had been there for 800 or 1,000 years. And because it was large and people kind of revered its staying power, it had been there in this temple for such a long time. There were lots of pilgrims who would come, but every 100 years or so, the clay and the paint would crack and then they, the monks would re-patch it up and repaint it But this happened when I was there in the 60s, it cracked a little bit, dried out. And one of the monks did something which they didn't have, you know, the hundred years before. And he took a little flashlight and he kind of peered inside the little crack and um, this glint of gold shined back out of it. So he peeked in another little crack and there was another glint of gold. So, you know, he got a screwdriver and kind of explored a little further, wouldn't you? And it turned out underneath was the largest and one of the most beautiful but definitely the largest casting in gold of an image of the Blessed One, a kind of artistic representation of awakening that had been cast ever in Southeast Asia and had been covered by this clay the monks presumed to protect it from marauding armies, regime changes, you know, monsoons, all the things that happen over centuries um, and eventually it was uncovered and now it's a, you know, a great place of pilgrimage. But it, in a way it's a metaphor very directly for the original beauty and innocence that is born in you and born in every being, that true nature or that inner gold what's called the original goodness, the luminosity of consciousness that then gets covered over by trauma and conditioning and culture and all these and things, and we forget who we are. The Buddha said, one is noble not by caste, nor by birth, not by race, not by creed. He was really adamant about this. But nobility is our birthright, and one is noble, one acts nobly, one lives nobly, one is noble from the state of heart. So I read this in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, uh, an article um, about this guy who said, he seems to look like sort of a youngish guy, he said, I've been borrowing cars the last couple of years on occasion, and I had three instances of trouble up blown fuse out of gas where the gas gauge didn't work, and, a, and, a, and then a blowout on a freeway. Um, and the fact that I, these were in borrowed cars made it more difficult, and each time I, I was frustrated because nobody helped. People would go by, I'd wave, try and hitchhike, nothing. Tow trucks would cruise past me. Finally, I got a ride to a gas station. They wouldn't lend me a gas can for, quote, safety reasons, but I could buy a cheap plastic one without a top, you know, for $15. And, what? Nobody helps anybody. He said, but you know who came to my rescue all these times, each time? Immigrants. Salvadorian, Ethiopian, Mexican. None of them even spoke English. One of these guys stopped with my blowout. I made a little sign, Needed Jack, and he had this whole family of five kids in the back and, and he took out his, jo- his jack and he came up and started to help me, but it was too small so we had to get a log and kind of, you know, try and fix it so he could jack up my Jeep that I was doing. And I, it, he, I took out his tire iron I was trying to take the wheel off and I broke his tire iron. <laughs> He's, he said, no problem. He gave it to his wife. She drove down the gas station, got a new one. Then we all got filthy and sweaty and we took the tire off and we fixed it and his wife got us this big thing of water to wash up with and I tried to put 20 bucks in the man's hand. He wouldn't take it so instead I went up to the van and gave it to his wife as quietly as I could and I thanked them upside down every language I could, you know, (laughs) said my goodbyes, walked back to the Jeep and the daughter who'd been translating for me in English called out and asked if I'd had any lunch. I said not yet. She ran up and handed me a tamale. (laughs) And this family, poorer than just about everybody else on the stretch of highway, you know, working in the orchards where time is money, they took two hours out of their day to help this strange guy on the road while all the tow trucks drove by, you know. But we weren't done yet. I thanked them, walked back to my car, opened the foil on the tamale, I was so hungry. And what did I find inside my $20 bill? I ran back to the van. The guy rolled down his window. He saw the 20 in my hand and started shaking his head no. All I could say is, por favor, por favor, with my hand out. And the guy just smiled with what looked like a great effort to find the right words in English. And he said, "Ah, today you, tomorrow me rolled up the window, drove away. It was about this daughter waving goodbye in the back window. It was the best tamale I ever ate. And I just sat there and I started to cry. And in the months since then, I've changed tires, given rides to gas stations, once drove 50 miles out of my way to get a girl to the airport. And I won't accept money, but every time I'm able to help, I feel like I'm putting something beautiful back into the bank of the world. You know, and you hear that story and you get touched by it, because that place in you of nobility resonates. This is your own nature and you feel it, you go, Oh yeah, isn't that isn't that beautiful? Because you know it. Now when you come on you come to a meditation class or you come for a day retreat or whatever you come to sit. That's not necessarily what you find. First, when you sit down to meditate, you hit the layer that is called the hindrances in the classical Buddhist texts. Tension that you carry in your body, you know that stuff? Because you've been running around a lot and you get quiet and your body says, hey, remember me? Jaw is tight and shoulders hurt. and All that stuff, it's there. Or the unfinished business of the heart, you know? the. The un- unwept tears that you have, that you didn't have time to feel something that was lost, or the repeated cares or concerns or anxiety or fear, or anger at somebody where you felt so lost or hurt or, or unseen, and all that stuff, or your longing, it comes. Um, and you think, well, where's the nobility in this? from an Indian saint, he says, go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on the anvil, and fire up the forge, and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. (laughs) So the first step of meditation is just to be able to tolerate the full experience of your humanity, what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity. Your longing and loneliness and fear and love and frustration and anxiety and um, all of that stuff, and you just be patient and you kind of bow to and say this is longing and this is loneliness and this is excitement and this is fear and this is you know, tension in the body and you let it begin to unwind and open and release and it tells its story and it weeps its tears and it has its life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you're sitting there as the Buddha saying, yes, this is part of humanity. So you're kind, you're dedicated, you're patient. And then in its own sweet time, but actually you begin to notice it like hints even very early in meditation, the realm of freedom also starts to show itself. Sometimes you just feel a little steadier or calmer, more able to be present with all the stuff that's coming. Or sometimes, and this is terribly important in meditation, you start to recognize that there isn't just the content of the stories, the tears, the fear and things like that. And I don't mean that you deny it. This is not like spiritual bypass. Well, let's put all that stuff aside and just smile and ohm, and it'll all be OK. Um, but it's like somebody would say to me, I always worry. I always worry. And I'd look at them and I'd say, always? Because nobody always. Nobody always anything. It's just not possible. You know, and you might worry a lot. You might even be a champion worrier, right? <laughs> but there are going to be gaps. There are going to be times when even your worrying gets tired of worrying. It does, <laughs> you know. And you start to notice that there's this whole storm where you're, where where you and you contract, and oh my God, and all that, you know. Um, and then there's a moment where it's like, <sighs> I'd stop worrying. And, and in that gap, there's a moment of just presence. I mean and that's just an example. But what what I'm <clears throat> what that example points to is that there's the stories and the content and the emotions that come <clears throat> but also there's a space of presence of knowing of clarity that you begin to notice is there even though You know, house cleaning is taking place and they're vacuuming and downstairs and cleaning in the basement and stuff in the attic, all that stuff's happening. There's some other reality that is also present for you in consciousness, in being. Does this make sense? And they're both important. It's important to honor and bow to it, let the unwinding and the release and the understanding that comes from that happen. It's liberating and honorable, but it's not the end of the story. And as you do, as you start to notice that that's not the only game, then a deeper level of presence comes. And it has kind of different dimensions, both important in this mystery of incarnation. One's the kind of universal aspect to it of just seeing that everything is like a wave. It comes and goes, it appears out of emptiness. You have your stories. It's like this story. I had a woman come on retreat with me some years ago who hated walking meditation. Said, I can sit, but I, boy, it's just, uh, it's just I hate it. And I get so much resistance and it's boring and nothing happens and my mind wanders and I just hate it. And I tried things. I said, walk slow, close your eyes and walk a little bit, you know, do standing. I had lots of different techniques to help people. Nothing worked, hated it. I said, well, it's simple. Then I have one last instruction. She was on retreat for a week. I said, stop sitting and only walk, and then you'll find out what's cooking. I said, what do you mean? I hate this. I said, good. All right. So we negotiated. Finally, she would do half a day. All right. And she left me this note, dear Jack, all long walking, all morning assignment completed. Thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me even more. I chose to walk in the lower walking room, this was at a different center, because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends in half an hour. No such luck. This pa- madman pounded his way through an hour and a half Nonstop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried loving-kindness practice. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. I noted hatred, hatred. Then I just stood in the middle of the room and cried. Tears, tears. Finally, I got to the point where I realized that whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that I got quiet, and he just became sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body, and after an hour and a half he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected mostly just different. I think this walking stuff actually works. Thank you. <laughs> you know. And so you see there you are in a complete snit or worse than that, you're just riled and caught and you know, that's just a tiny thing, but it's it's a model of the way we get caught in our relationships and our business and you know, in the world and all these ways. And there comes a revelation. That that the problem, I mean, there are things that we need to tend to, but that the source of the problem is, guess who? As Miss Piggy would say, moi, you know? (laughs) And you start to realize that, yes, the world has difficulties in it and things that need tending, but all the suffering that we make, you know, and all the stories about how it's supposed to be. I won't finish the sentence, I'll read from Kensi Rinpoche. He says, mind creates both samsara, the world of circular confusion, and nirvana. Yet there's nothing much to it. It's just made of thoughts. Once we recognize that the thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. And empty doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means that they're thoughts. You see them for what they are. Does this make sense to you? And there comes this kind of universal understanding of things are rising out of emptiness and passing in, then we can, Then there's a possibility of choosing wisely rather than just being caught and reactive to everything. And more and more we rest in the space of awareness. We trust it. We learn the, the beauty of emptiness and presence. So that universal dimension deepens. But also as we rest in awareness, we do start to see the structures of our personal life as we get quiet. Not just the kind of common hindrances, but the relationships or the relation to our body or the family we're in or the kind of way we deal with money or something that's just gone on and on in our life or the loneliness that we've run from. As the poet Hafiz says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly let it season you as few ingredients can and and then instead of it just being a problem you start to in the quiet let yourself feel right into the roots of the things that keep coming back your top 10 tunes that make difficulties and you feel right at the center the the longing the loyalty to the suffering the You know, the belief, I'm not okay, or I need this to be okay, or I need them to do this. You know that glue, that sticky stuff in there that creates a kind of false identity. And you start to feel it and sense it right in the middle, held in the body or the emotions. And there comes a kind of liberation. Say, oh yeah, and it's not that it won't come back, but that you know it and you know that it's not who you are. That's the real liberation, that it's not, it's just conditions. Now, of course, the problem is that um, even when you become free of it and you say, oh, here's this whole thing that I've been caught in so many times and now I, I see the root, I, you know, I learned it this way or I feel this and it's, I, I've just felt it all and I see it, I can release it. Well, a man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest." (laughs) And that's kind of how the mind works, you know. You get liberated. but... You know, it's a process, right? Okay, and then it comes back again to test you to see. But more and more you trust the space of knowing and the capacity to be free rather than to be caught. And these dimensions of both uh, deepening and release and cleansing and opening are important, but also trusting the space of awareness, of liberated attention to be in the reality of the present. And through this, we begin to find our own nobility. We find the unshakable spirit of Nelson Mandela, the dignity, the beauty of Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, It's not just them who we admire out there, but it's our own capacity to be present. And of course, while this dignity is our true nature, this nobility, it helps to have reminders. That's why people come and practice together or why there are trainings. Because otherwise we lose it and then life is sort of like a boat without a rudder. You get overwhelmed by the confusion or the consumerism or the continuing warfare or racism, insanity of racism or environmental problems and things. And you can get flooded. So you need to have some practice or training that brings you back. and Of course, the ground of it, as we've talked about sometimes, is generosity, You know, caring for one another, and integrity or virtue. It's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work terribly well, so you have to kind of tend to your life in some honorable, honorable way. But then, as you do, if you create a life that has some basic virtue to it and so forth, then you begin to sit and allow the awakened heart, this capacity to be present, spacious, with dignity, to open, to, to be known. And as you do, these beautiful qualities, the Buddha used to love to describe, the, he called them the factors of enlightenment, the divine abodes. These qualities that are that gold in every human being when they awaken, he liked to recite them. There's a great tradition of reciting them because it's a protection against adversity or an invitation to heal. May it work, you know. Um, and so when somebody was really sick, he would send a monk to go and recite the factors of enlightenment and they would feel better. In fact, there's a wild text where the Buddha was not feeling well, and he said, somebody, hey, come in and recite these qualities to me, and he felt much better afterwards, so make of that what you like, anyway. um, But here we are talking about what it means to become present, the layer of hindrances that are there, and meeting them honorably, but then sensing that's not the whole story, and dropping to feel the space of awareness, the emptiness, the the deep identification and then the possibility of liberating, of freeing oneself in that. And more and more then the qualities of the awakened heart start to show themselves. Mindfulness becomes stronger, sati. There's nothing more helpful than mindfulness, said the Buddha. And mindfulness is this capacity to be present without judging or trying to change anything. It is the gateway to freedom. It is fearlessness itself, the timeless, the deathless. And my my good friend, John Kabat-Zinn, who many of you have heard of, who did mindfulness-based stress reduction now in hundreds of clinics and hospitals and all this stuff worldwide, lots of research. When he started in the basement of the medical school in Massachusetts 25, 30 years ago after he first started to do mindfulness practice. He did grand rounds with the physicians at the medical school, and he said, we've got a clinic in the basement, a mindfulness clinic. They rolled their eyes. He said, this is what I want. I want you to send me the patients you can't help. Send me the worst ones, the ones you've done everything, the ones who are in pain, the ones who are, seem intractable in this way or that. Those are the ones I want you to send me to. Because he said, not to them, but to me when we talked about it, he said, because I had the strongest medicine. And the strongest medicine in one language was the medicine of the truth, that instead of all the things that they were trying to fix, and sometimes that you can fix it, and it's a fabulous thing. But when modern medicine didn't work, he would have people come and say, all right, let's take this seat as a Buddha and find a relationship to your pain or to the loss you have or the stroke you've had or the whatever it happens to be, the relationship of dignity and nobility and presence and compassion for exactly who you are. And that was the big medicine, you know. And then, of course, the clinic grew and eventually he became, you know, special professor of whatever. And then the doctors, you know, realized that there was something happening in the basement after all. Um, (laughs) But it's because there's this enormous power that grows in the capacity to be present for the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life that we can do this and it is absolutely liberating. And with mindfulness there comes, as we open this inner nobility, this beauty, there comes the quality of what's called investigation or um, seeing for yourself or discovery is another translation for it. This is a Sufi story. A man who'd studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died in the fullness of time and found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, go no further, O mortal, until you've proven to me your worthiness to enter into paradise. But the man answered, just a minute now, First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? Before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in, he's one of us. (laughs) And nobody can tell you the way that it is in such a way that it really answers your question just like nobody can love for you. Nobody can let go for you. These things that are so critical. It's your own heart's understanding that liberates you. And so this quality of discovery is seeing for yourself. What is confusion? What is fear? What is the liberation from this? What is the, the liberation of the heart? You see and you learn in yourself. And then the next quality the Buddha liked to talk about <clears throat> was what he called wise effort. Because spiritual practice, like anything, takes attention. And I remember this man who was on a retreat, who had chronic pain and a degenerative disease. A lot of trouble in his body. His sister had just lost her job and had moved in with him. His father had Alzheimer's and he didn't know quite what he was going to do. And he was sitting with a tremendous amount of grief. And he came in one day, he'd been struggling with all that, and he said, I found a mantra for myself. I said, what is it? Courage. I just say to myself, courage, courage. And I sit there and all this stuff comes in my fear and anxiety and my dad and my sister and my own body. And then I say, courage, courage. And I put that little kind of smile like the Buddha and I take my seat and I say, courage, courage. And this is really what right effort means. doesn't mean that you can fix the world. You've tried that for a while, right? I mean, there are things you should do and tend to care for, but this is a bigger game. And when I was working with some peace groups in Palestine, I like to carry different pictures with me. Um, there's this huge wall that's been built by the Israeli government between Israel and Palestine, it would be sort of okay. It's just incredibly oppressive and ugly. It's apartheid-looking. But it really looks like the San Quentin walls, you know, with big towers. and It's terrible. The worst part is that a lot of it made incursions into the olive groves and the villages of Palestinians um, in kind of taking land that was not really part of that borders of of the West Bank, um, and so um, there's just a lot of trauma and struggle and tragedy on both sides. And on the Palestinian side of the wall, there's a lot of graffiti, but not just words. There's pictures in this one place where this olive grove that was beautiful that had been part of this village for hundreds of years was cut down and the wall took that land away. The Palestinian children in that village Painted the olive grove on their side of the wall, and said, "You may cut down the olive trees, but we know that they are still there in our they're still there in our hearts," or something like that in Arabic. Anyway, one of the pictures painted on there, maybe you can see if I hold it up. This is um, fifteen or twenty feet high. It's a piece dove. You can see the little car in the corner, so it's quite large. And the thing is that it's wearing a flak jacket. It's wearing a bulletproof vest. And I was so touched by this image because there she was, you know, with an olive branch in her beak, saying, Oh yeah, this is a kind of a tough assignment. So I gotta (laughs) put on my but it was it was also enormously hopeful. There's something enormously hopeful in that image. You know, and we see it right now in the Middle East and all these things that are happening. There is a kind of courage that young people are exhibiting that's extraordinary, and this is in you as well. You have it. You know it. Oh, you lose it sometimes, but you bring it back. And then there's a quality of joy, another factor of enlightenment. The point of spiritual practice is not grim duty, you know, and we become at times quite loyal to our suffering, as you know, because it's who we think we are. Who would I be without my suffering? I mean, it's okay, go ahead, suffer, you know. (laughs) But after a while, it gets old. (laughs) And it's not the end of the story. I think, writes Alice Walker, that it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. (laughs) People think pleasing God is all God cares about, but any fool living in the world can see It's always trying to please us back and so this is actually a quality of enlightenment to have joy. It's what opens the mind and the heart. And then calm. This is another of these qualities the Buddha liked to recite, relax, ease, you know, which is to say stepping out of time, the question is not the future of humanity but the presence of eternity. Half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we've rushed through life trying to save. That's Will Rogers. Half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we've rushed through life trying to save. You know, or Lao Tzu, who says, nature does not hurry, yet everything is accomplished. What am I doing? Nothing. I'm letting life rain upon me. For it's an ironic habit of human beings to run faster when we've lost our way. And the quality of calm is the ability to stop and take in meditation your seat on the earth or to take a walk by the ocean or, you know, in the hills or and so forth, and actually feel each step and the in the breeze and the sky and become alive here and now to let things quiet and look around at where you are. Little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river, I am learning to cross, writes the poet Wendell Berry. And so you use the breath not to become a good breather, but to to help quiet the mind so you can be here and see the mystery. And then calm, which you have and you long for and you know, and it's not like you, you can't be you know, happy and excited, that's the rapture part, but it needs, you need both. Calm then also brings or is born together with a, a steadiness of mind or heart called concentration. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course And then the heart will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. Heart and mind is the same word. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And so you learn somehow to steady the ship, The balance, it's not too tight and not too loose, but you actually learn how to come to the center, you know, and you learn it in all kinds of arts. If you're a calligrapher or if you're, you know, writing code for the computer, or if you're, if you're a gardener, you know, or if you're making love, I hope. That's a sort of natural concentration. It's part of the reason we love it, besides that it's pleasurable. It's actually one of the things that lets the world drop away for you and you become so present for it, at best. And what's part of what makes it so fantastic. And so there comes calm, but there also comes an ability to become whole with where you are. And then this brings the beauty Of balance of equanimity. William Butler Yeats again, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and live for a moment with a clearer perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And equanimity doesn't mean that you don't have difficulty or that the waves don't come, but it's the ability to rest in the spaciousness of mind so that things come and go, just as we were sitting when we started. Experiences arise and display themselves, feelings, emotions, thoughts, all of these things, but there's a sense of the vastness of space that's always present. We're surrounded by enormous space, you know, we call it sky. It's actually space. I mean, you're looking into eternity up there. You're looking out through the solar system and the galaxy into the cosmos. And of course, we're sort of like the ant people on our little you know, blue-green chip in the cosmos and so forth. But we're surrounded by this vast, enormous silence in which the spheres of the universe move and in which beings are born and incarnated and do their dance, including you. I mean, it's so mysterious. Nobody knows how quite how you got here, right? And you're here for a time. And what is that spirit that comes in with the body? Because you're surely not just your food body. I mean, you know that. You're not just made out of, I don't know what it is you eat, tofu or, you know. (laughs) chicken or something like that. It's just not who you are. You know that. You know there is a spirit. And to know that and feel that spirit connected with the timeless, with eternity, awakens us in this, in this direct and immediate way. And it puts everything at ease. You look in the mirror, as I often say, and you notice that you've aged, right? But you don't feel older. And again, that's because the body ages, but that's not who you are. Even that moment in the mirror, you recognize, "Oh yeah, look at what's happening to it. It's losing its fur." You know, it's, but it's not. It's not you. And you begin to trust that space of stillness and awareness. So these are the awakened heart nobility, and they open together with the other qualities the Buddha spoke of, the divine qualities of loving kindness, compassion, and joy. Say a little more about those, just because it's fun to bring them alive in a way. Because when you hear them and reflect on them, they kind of resonate at best with something that you know is true. So when the mind becomes quiet and the heart starts to open, um, we begin to feel the innate and fundamental connection with life, which is what we are. We are life. And so metta, or loving-kindness, starts to shine in us. And we begin to touch with love this mysterious life we've given. Not because you're supposed to or you should be a loving person, but because it's what happens. I mean, if, you, if you're if you quiet and you look in the eyes of a person when you're still, I mean, it's like, what an amazing thing. Are you in there? You know? And this connection comes. Um, you're not um, separate. That's such an illusion. Uh, all the modern neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology, you know the mirror neurons and things like that it's so clear that we're fields that resonate with one another and with the bigger field and now it's measurable in all kinds of ways um, but you don't have to measure it you know it
1: you, just, you know
0: in the most obvious ways if you go and you're in a room and somebody comes in who's really angry, it takes you about a second to feel it, doesn't it? like there's a violin being played here and another one sitting on the table and the the strings of the one sitting there resonate with the one that's being played. They're not separate. You're not separate. Okay, a story for you. From Barbara Kingsolver. It begins with a tribe or a group of nomads in northwestern Iran, the Lorai tribe, who were up in the mountains in the fields they Grow wheat in in the summer, and there they were. And they'd given the young children in the village to a teenage girl in charge of the babies and the little ones. And she comes running toward them, frightened to say he's gone. One this one kid, a year and a half less than that, sixteen months. She can't find him. He seemed almost too small to walk, but he. She was tending to all them, and he could walk okay. But he and she looked everywhere and. They could hardly believe her, you know. No parent's ready for that. So they they ran around looking for him, and they went back to their yurt or wherever it was, and all the hiding places where he, you know, he would go, and he was gone. And their hearts sank. And so they began to search. They asked everybody first, their own village, every box. You know, they got the neighbors. They looked all around, but then it grew dark, and he's nowhere and can he survive in the mountains and then someone says a bear and everyone says no not a bear you know and people sleep at night but not the mother and father and the next morning they're out and they're looking and looking they comb the woods they can't find anything and another night and some begin to give up hope the mother weeps and the father says no we have to look and he gets some of the men of the village and they walk toward the mountains five kilometers away, up to the caves. The baby's 16 months, his mother says. He took his first steps in June, a week before Midsummer's Day. He can't have walked that far, but they just walk and look and walk and look through the forest. And at the mouth of the fourth cave they enter, they hear a voice. Definitely, it's a cry, a child's cry. Cautiously, they look in the darkness and ominously, they smell bare. The boy's there, crying alive, and they move into the half-light in the cave, two of them, and stand and wait. The smell gets danker, and the stone walls show itself, and they see the animal, not a dark hollow in the cave, but a round shape of a thick-furred quiescent she-bear lying against the wall, and then they see the child. The bear is curled around him, protecting him. And somehow, and I don't know happened, how it happened next. They reach for the child, they got the child. Praise Allah, this strange mother worked for he was alive, unscarred, well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. Now what does this mean? How is it possible that a huge hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than rip into him for food. But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating so she must have had young of her own somewhere, possibly died. So that she was driven by the pure chemistry of maternity to take this small warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. And you could read this story and say impossible even though many witnesses have sworn it's true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places and think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love. The fact of the DNA code that we share in its great majority with all mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course, the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk, small wonder. And the miracle of Loristan is there, it's genuine. And if you venture onto the information highway with a good search engine and propose Kaihan or Iran or Bear, you will find this tiny remarkable note in the history of humankind. What does it mean for us? Metta is as genuine and natural as your breath. And it is there in your dignity and your nobility as much as in that mother bear, and all it asks is a little quiet and a little attention. Because in the end, what matters? Really, what matters? Did I love well? And so this is, again, the quality of the awakened heart. And when metta meets suffering, when love meets suffering, then it changes its flavor a tiny bit and it becomes compassion. It connects with another being because we are connected. But then instead of just happiness, may you be well love, it turns into compassion to hold the sorrow of another. Donations for Haiti after the huge earthquake and 200,000 deaths poured into the American Red Cross. But nothing stood out like the coins and crumpled dollar bills that spilled from one envelope, that gift, $14.64, came from the pockets of homeless people at a downtown Baltimore shelter with this simple note that said, we hope these people are okay, this is what we can send. It is so natural to us, compassion and love. It's kind of wild that we're not in love with everybody all the time. It is. And that we've made these artificial constructs of nations and political parties. I mean, they have their place. But they're so artificial. Love, compassion, and joy. As I spoke of earlier, the laughter of the Dalai Lama, you know, the sweetness of springtime coming. These are the qualities of awakening. And as Rumi writes, ours is not a caravan of despair, no matter how broken or afraid or lost you may be. Um, That's not who you are. It's part of your history and it needs to be honored. But Helen Keller puts it this way. She says, although the world is full of suffering, It is also full of the overcoming of it. And this is the realization of the Buddha, but it's really your realization, the realization of any human being who finds liberation in this mystery of incarnation. So you meditate not to have some particular state or some great vision or experience. They come sometimes, maybe, maybe not, they will but you remember when you meditate who you really are. You find the space of awareness. You find the great heart of compassion or loving kindness. You can release the difficulties that come. You can sense the connection with the universe and the mystery. Mm -hmm. And with a little poem because the gift of your practice is not so much even what happens when you meditate but really what it reminds you of that you carry like a uh, beacon, a lamp that illuminates like a perfume if you happen to enjoy that. like a, I don't know, a quality of presence and courage that we, that we learn from one another. So this is uh, Lori Anderson. She writes, in the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle. And at the center, there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand and it takes months and months. And then when the map is finished, they say a few prayers and erase it and throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers with the sand mandala were a series of vows he asked us to take and before I knew it I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough. I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? (laughs) And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can't you help me, please? And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open your heart, open it all up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open, find the right road. And one more thing, get moving, because it's finally time to go home. So let's sit for a minute. And it doesn't matter what happens when you sit. You sit as the Buddha and say, yes, this too, this too, this breath, this experience. Rest in the space of awareness, relax into it, it is your home. Let the breath breathe itself and the waves of sounds and feelings, thoughts and images, let them rise and fall like waves of the ocean. and take whatever dignity or courage or love that you touch in meditation and bring it as a blessing to everyone you meet. So I want to thank you for your kind attention Um, And I also want to say that all the money that you're going to put in the basket as you go out, large bills especially, um, are going... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.